All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea, and where we find ourselves here tonight is in chapter 6, Hosea chapter 6. And as we come here into this chapter, I want to just begin by just opening up and sharing with you. Remember now the last part of chapter 5 where we left off. The Lord declared this. He said in verse 15, I will, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense, and then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. He made mention that he was going to just let them be on their own, and then eventually they were going to you know, come to that place of, wow, I don't want to be on my own. And he said, and then eventually they were going to acknowledge their offense. They would come back and seek his face, and it, he then makes this point, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And of course, we you know, tied off last week by saying, isn't that the time that we really begin to seek the Lord? You know, like when Peter was sinking, you know, there in the ways that, Lord, save me. You earnestly seek God, you know, in those times of affliction. So when we realized that we left off in chapter 5 with God saying, just, just come on back, come on back. In your affliction, you're going to earnestly seek me. We see here this area where God now begins to really point out as he's going to, as we'll see just a little bit, like a prosecuting attorney. He's going to state, you know, his case against Israel, how they have been unfaithful, how they have not sought him, and how they've rejected, you know, both him and his covenant. But it begins in chapter 6, verse 1, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. It's interesting as God opens this up, the children of Israel are saying, come, let us return to the Lord. And they know this. After their affliction, let us return to the Lord. They make this statement, he has torn, but he will heal. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. There was a, um, a book that I had read on the 23rd Psalm, and this man was, it's just simply as a shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm, was speaking about when uh, a sheep would constantly just leave the shepherd and was constantly prone to wander and prone to wander and put itself in danger, that it was, he stated that the shepherd would take his staff, break the leg, they would literally break a leg and then instantly bind it up. So they would bind it up and they would, they would patch it. But the shepherd would carry the sheep everywhere for the next couple of weeks. He'd carry it to the feeding, carry it to the drinking. He would just carry it everywhere. And yet when that lamb was finally healed and the lamb could now walk, it was said that that lamb would stay closest to the shepherd than any other because he realized this is my protection. This is my source. This is, this is where I live close to him. And so it's interesting. They're saying the same thing, that God is going to discipline, but he disciplines, and keep in mind that we'll be looking at just a moment, God only disciplines as much as, as is necessary in order to get them to come back. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, well, I'm not angry now, and I'm going to discipline you to this full extent that I can. God is always, always merciful. 
And in any form of discipline that God ever does, he says, I'm only going to go this far because I don't have to go any further. As soon as you come back, as soon as you return, that's where I end it. And so it declares that, you know, let us return to the Lord. He is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. So there's a discipline, but he is going to bring us back. And after two days, he will revive us. The two being the number of witness, the revive is saying after two days, there's going to be a revival. After this period of time, there's going to be this revival. And then it makes this statement, a very unique statement. And, and after, you know, he says after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will rise us up. On the third day, he's going to raise us up. And this is, you know... I'm just thinking on the third day, he's going to raise up. You know, you think this is some subtle way of talking about here, the resurrection. I want to share with you um, just one passage, actually two passages, both found in the book of Colossians. And in Colossians 3, verse 1, he makes this statement. This is Paul writing to the church of Colossae. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Also in Colossians 2, verse 12 and 13, he says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So we see here that, you know, in the same way as that when we celebrate the baptism, that as Christ died physically, we die spiritually. As Christ was raised physically, we are raised spiritually. And so you see this point where I almost think this is a, an illusion where Paul was able to grasp this and realize there in Colossians, in his you know, epistle to the church of Colossae, that after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up. That when he's raised, we're raised with him. This beautiful th part of Hey, the restoration of God. And when it talks about here that, you know, yeah, he has stricken us, but he is going to heal. He is going to bind. He is going to minister to us. And the, the greatest thing is this. He's going to deal with this in our sin, but he has, you know, through his work, forgiven us. So there is an opportunity here at the second day to revive us. There can be a revival. And on the third day, he's going to just simply raise us up. So as we're raised up to be with him, that we may live in his sight. So as we have been, you know, redeemed, we now live with him. The work is done. So in verse three, he says, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning, and he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. So here he says, let us know. You, you need to have an understanding. You need to have this knowledge. And so it's important to one to say, yeah, you know, I can believe these things, but I know that I know who Christ is in my life. Not, not just who I want him to be or who my feelings say is, but who the word of God actually declares that he is. So it says, let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Now remember when we were there in, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, and that's where we you know, looked at that warning where he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
You know, that, that he says, now he says, you need to know, you need to know these things. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, where he says, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's important that if you're going to have this knowledge, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. For his his going forth is established as the morning. When God is saying, this is my moving, then you'll know it. It's established. It's one of the first things that we have to understand. It's looking to what God declares he will do. What God declares is his heart. And then it says, as you go to the Lord and you have that understanding of the Lord and you receive that working of the Lord, he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. He's talking about now the rain that you get when you first plant the crop and then the rain that you get as you begin to harvest a crop. The beautiful thing is this, that when you first plant the crop, you need the rain to allow it to grow. And then the latter rains allow the, um, the fruit that you're doing to get super plump, super ripe, super amazing. And that's what he's declaring. He's going to come as the latter and the former rain. He's talking about repeated blessings. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you again. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you again. And when you realize this is what the heart of God is. So he says, return to me because I do want to bless you. You know who I am. Well, in verse 4, he goes, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Judah, what shall I do to you? Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud and like the early dew that goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So he comes up as this attorney now and is simply stating a case. And he goes to Ephraim, which is the, the northern, another name for Israel, the largest tribe that was up there of the 10 northern tribes. He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? So at this point now, God knows what he has to do. I know what I'm going to do, but he says, oh, what I would really like to do is this. How often do we realize that God says, listen, I've got to discipline you, but I'd really like to not have to do that. If you come back, if you do the things, this is what I'd like to do. However, you're forcing my hand. You're not coming back. Your heart is still in the wrong place. Your actions are in the wrong place. And so he says, what shall I do to you? Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. So he says that their faithfulness to God was like fog in the morning and dew on the ground in the morning, that as soon as the, the sun comes up, what? Quickly evaporates. That's what he says is their faithfulness. Your faithfulness quickly evaporates. Your faithfulness doesn't stick around. As soon as the little heat comes, what happens? You're out of here. As soon as the sun comes up, you're gone. And that's what he's saying about their faithfulness, that all of a sudden a little issues begin to happen in their life if God isn't constantly being the genie in the bottle, the one that they simply rub the lamp, poofy comes out, grant my wish. And if God doesn't grant the wishes that I need, 
And if he's allowing me to suffer in any kind of way, once a little heat comes up, well, where does my faithfulness go? Well, I'm not hanging around with God anymore. I'm going to go find someone else to make sure my life is just a piece of cake in a, in a field of daisies. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what he says. What am I going to do to you? You're not looking to me. Your, your faithfulness is, is here and then it's gone. Therefore, verse 5, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So he says, okay, this is what I've done. I've hewn them by the prophets. The, the words that they have said should be cutting them down, should be whittling them down, softening them up. And then he says, and your judgments are like the light that goes forth, or the judgments on you are illuminating who we are, is a better way to translate that. And your, your, so your judgments are a light that goes forth. And he says, for I desire, verse 6, mercy and not sacrifice. So as we're seeing this, keep in mind that what they were doing, as although they were, you know, serving the idols, worshiping the idols, remember what they, we read back in chapter 5, verse 6 of Hosea? It made this statement, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. It's a way of saying that they you know, will continue to do sacrifices. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to you know, take their flocks, take their herds. They're going to go seek the Lord. They're going to have the sacrifices. But he goes on and says, listen, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So, you know, back in verse 3, he says, come on, know, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. You're doing all these outward things, but you're not really seeking me. You're not really knowing me. Everything that you do is basically just, you know, almost a habit. You do it because you do it, not because you want to, not because there's any meaning in it. How many times have you heard a group of people say the Lord's Prayer? And to be honest, and they have no idea what they're really saying. That is like, no, you're saying this. Our Father who art in heaven, is your heart exploding because of that? You know, and so, but yet they'll say things just out of rote. They'll do things just out of habit. And although they do it and they do it, there's no true meaning behind them. And I think that's the important thing of always making sure that my heart is right, my heart is humble, and I'm just in awe of who God is. So in verse 6, he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Verse 7, but like men, they transgressed the covenant. That term, like men, literally means it's, the word is Adam. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, like men. So in other words, it almost referring like back to the sin nature, there's nothing you can do. You're a sinner, so you're going to sin. And so like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood, as bands of robbers lie in wait for a man. So he talks about now the, the, the capitals here, the bigger cities of the northern tribes. They're simply wicked. They defile it with blood. 
It says in verse 9, as bands of robbers lie in wait for man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. Now I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel, and there is harlotry in Ephraim. Israel is defiled also, O Judah. A harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. So at this point, beginning in verse 9, he talks about the bands of robbers come and lie in wait for a man. And then he says, and so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Now, this whole thing of priest murdering on the way to Shechem, um, I think it's interesting that what happens is these priests should be what? They should be sowing words of life. And yet what they're doing is they're not sowing words of life. There's that warning that, you know, Ezekiel gave. If you remember that passage in Ezekiel chapter 3, I want to start reading verse 17. I want to read to verse 19. Once I read it, it's going to ring a bell. You may not remember the address, but you'll remember the words. But in Ezekiel 3, 17, he says, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Verse 19, yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. It's interesting to see that as we're looking to this passage where this company of priests are murderers, there's one of two things. Either these priests are just as corrupt as the robbers, and they will go and they will steal, and they will kill physically, or they're not warning like they should. But what's happening with the priests is this. The priests were the one who were leading the way to idol worship. They were the ones who say, hey, we're the leaders of the people. We're going here. So the people would follow the leadership to the way of death. And so you see here this incredible thing where bands of robbers lie in wait for a man. And so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. And so I've seen horrible things in the house of Israel, verse 10. There is harlotry in Ephraim. Israel is defiled, also Judah. A harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. So he does say, and I love how with everything that he's saying, I'm going to deal with you. I have to deal with you because you're not seeking me. You don't know me. Everything that you do is just out of rote. You really have no heart for me. You're just going through actions. So I'm doing one thing and you're doing the same thing to the idols. And there's really no difference between us. So he says at the end of verse 11, also Judah, a harvest is appointed. What? When I return the captives of my people. Even after all this, he said, and I'm going to bring you back. This is incredible. After everything that he's saying, he said, yet I'm going to bring you back. In chapter 7, when I would have healed Israel, 
Then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies." So as we see here in chapter 7, he says, When I would have healed you, my heart is to do what? Not to punish. You know, because it said back in chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. He is torn, but he will heal. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. That's his heart. So in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, When I would have healed Israel, my heart was to heal you. My heart was to minister to you. My heart was to bless you, and then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. Again, speaking of the northern tribes, he said, I wanted to heal, and your sin was so blatant. And the wickedness of Samaria, they committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They practice the sin continually, and then they come in and they offer their sacrifices and say, oh, we're here to worship God. Now, this is absolutely incredible because it's so interesting that what they were doing is they were practicing a lifestyle that was contrary to God. Just like many times there are a lot of people who are in the church and they have this lifestyle of practice sin. And then they come into the church and they, they profess the Lord. They profess that they are righteous. They profess all these things and they pretend to not practice the sin that they're practicing. Like it just, it doesn't happen. But the reality is what, they're living this dual life. They're, they're living one thing outside and pretending when they come in. And this is what he says. Look at what you're doing in verse 7. He says, I would have healed you, but all this stuff is going on. And you're coming to me as if you are healed. And you're not. So, verse 2, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. God sees everything. It's not like when you come to church, he says, oh, yeah, we won't think about all that. We will let all that go. He says, their own deeds have surrounded them. You can't leave them at the door. You can't say that, that you know, I'm going to practice this sin and walk in and be right. Now, here's the reality. All of our sins have been paid for. They're there at the cross. But as you're practicing these things, don't come in and feign righteousness. Realize, I'm a sinner. You come in, you need to be made right with the Lord, not pretend that there's nothing wrong. So understand that we all have sin. We're all going to fall short of the glory of God. But the key being is this, is to come in and not pretend like it doesn't happen, but to come in and remember, Jesus Christ, you forgave me. And I'm, I'm here not to walk in this sin. I'm here to reject that life. And I'm here to now take on this new life that you have. So, because I know that you remember all the wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them and they are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness. Now it's interesting where here he says, they are before my face. There's two points of this that I want you to realize. When he says, they are before my face is what? I see everything that's going on. You can't hide this from me. That is, they are before my face. The other thing is this. 
I want you to see that as they are before his face, sometimes we look at it as his face is all angry and his face is wanting to judge them. But I'm here to tell you that I look at the face of God and I see it like here he is in the garden with Adam. Adam, where are you? That if they were to turn, now see, they are before his face, but he's not before theirs. So in other words, he's looking at them, and they're not, they're not before, he's not before their face, he's at their backs. They're turning away, they're not looking at the Lord. If they would turn and look at the Lord, they would see this heartbroken father, this heartbroken husband says, please come back to me. And, and so they are before my face. He knows what's going on, but at the same time, although he's looking at them, the, the sad thing is, is that they're not looking to him. And so we see here that it says, they are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. So we see the reality is there's no good examples. And as they're living this life of wickedness, the kings and the princes have no problem with it because what? They're just like us. They're not doing anything wrong in, in my mind or in my heart. They're making my lifestyle look fine. And so when you have wicked leaders and the people are wicked, they have no problem. The leadership has no issue with those kinds of lifestyles when their own, the leaderships are in, you know, in sin. So verse 4, it says, they are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a baker, he ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In that day, in the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, and they prepared their heart like an oven. While they lie in wait, the baker sleeps all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges and their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. So we see from verses four to seven that he begins to speak of really what's going on in their hearts. He says in verse four, they're all adulterers. But then he makes a statement. They are in oven heated by a baker he ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough. What he's talking about now, if you've ever been to the point where you've baked bread, sometimes you make an oven warm and you put the, the bread into the oven, a warmed oven, to allow the yeast to make it rise. And this is what he's saying. The leaven is now spreading. The leaven is now growing. So you're like this heated, the oven heated by a baker, he ceases stirring it after the kneading of the dough. Once it's there, you're all mixed up. Now you're waiting for the leaven to expand. And that's what it says. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. So as that leaven is expanding in the dough, in the days of our king, the princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. He stretched out his hands with scoffers. They prepared their heart like an oven. While they lie in wait, their baker sleeps all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. 
So he's talking now the difference between the leaven in the bread and the leaven in our heart. When you have this leaven in the bread, as you have that warmed oven that rises and rises, the, the, the dough rises, here he says the same thing with the leaven in your heart. You are just inflamed with your passions. When you allow the leaven to continue to rise, the leaven to constantly spread through your life, what happens is this. You don't want kings to, to rule you anymore. You want your passions to rule you. And it's interesting, you don't want the law to rule you. You don't want rights and wrong to rule you. It's my heart and it's my emotions. And I want anyone getting in the way of that. Once your passions start raging, logic goes out the window. And I don't know if you've ever had, you know, tried to have a discussion with someone who is emotional. And they're not listening to reason, and all they are is they're just so inflamed. And maybe you've been at that point where you're just so angry, so emotional, you don't even listen to logic anymore because the passions have inflamed you. And that's what they're saying here. I don't want any king. I don't want anything else. Nothing is going to rule me but my passions. Men aren't going to rule me. Laws aren't going to rule me. Reason isn't going to rule me. My passions are ruling me now. Because you've allowed that leaven to spread and spread. So in verse 7 it says, And they are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. It's incredible that within Israel, four out of the last seven kings were assassinated. They didn't even make it a year. Some made it days, some made it months, a couple made it a year. But four out of the last seven were wiped out. Because there's so much sin and so much passion. I'm not going to have this guy rule over me. I'm not going to have this guy rule over me. So in verse 7, they are all hot like an oven. They have devoured their judges and their kings have fallen. He told them that through this passion, this is where it's going to be. Now he says, after their kings have fallen, none of them calls upon me. None of them. None of them calls upon me. Now they have all this outward stuff that they do. There's an outward looking to me, an outward area of sacrificing, you know, because, you know, they, they, their flocks with their flocks and their herds, they go and they seek the Lord. They're all with an outward, but they don't truly come. And I find this amazing where it says, none of them calls upon me. They, they, they go and they make sacrifices and they do all these things, but none of them want to have a relationship. None of them want intimacy. None of them want to call upon God. They're here and they do their thing and they walk away. And sadly to say, I think there are a lot of people in our country that that's what churches become. It's just something that I got to go there, I got to show up, and then I can walk away. I can go back to my life, but I got to show up so that I can, you know, put in my time and then I walk away. But they're not calling upon God. They're not coming before him and crying out to him. And so we see here, there, there was none among them. They all were doing sacrifices. They're all doing their rituals, but none of them were calling upon God. And what God wanted, what? I want your heart. I want you guys. I don't want this outward thing. I want an inward relationship. So in verse 8, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned, 
Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, and he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. We see in verse 8 that he talks about Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. That there were the, the Canaanites that were in the land. They didn't get rid of them all. And so the northern tribes were intermixed with the pagans that were there in Israel. And so because of the intermixing that they did, here Hosea speaks and he says at the end of verse 8, after he says Ephraim has mixed himself among the people, Ephraim is a cake unturned. What does it mean to be a cake unturned? If you know what a, a, a flapjack, pancake, griddle cake is, what happens is this. You put the, the batter on a hot pan, and as you leave it there, eventually the bottom gets very hot. But if you don't flip it, if you don't flip it, you have a very hot bottom and a very cold and raw top. And that's what he's saying here. He says, you guys, because you're intermixing, you're hot on one side and cold on the other. You are like a cake that's unturned. You have this, this, this here I'm going to do this sacrifice, but I'm also going to just do these idols. You're, you're, you're completely mixed. And you have nothing that where he says, you know, I love our Lord, I'd rather you be hot or cold. And here they're both. So you have this hot, you have this cold. He says, no, it might be one way or another. But you here, you're just on one side. But because you're mixed, you're, you're part of them and you want to be part of me. And you can't be both. And he says in verse 9, aliens have devoured his strength, but he doesn't know it. The compromises of the pagans that were there has taken away any of his spiritual strength. But yet he's done it so gradually by saying, okay, we'll compromise a little bit here, we'll compromise a little bit here. He says, you've done it step by step by step, little tiny increments, and you don't even realize how far you've gone. So at this point, you're saying, oh my goodness. Here, he says, aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. In the same way as when Samson had finally revealed the secret of his strength, and you know Delilah went and you know, cut off his hair. And it says that he awoke as at other times and says, hey, I'm going to go out and go to do this. But he did not know that the spirit of God had left him. But here he says, you guys, you don't even know. And I find it so interesting. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. He goes on to say, your gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. What does that mean? It means that there comes a certain age in which a man actually has this little sprinkling of gray. A little piece here, a little piece there, and, and, and eventually you get a little bit more gray and a little bit more gray. But you see one hair and then you see a couple more. And what happens is this. It's so gradual. It's so gradual you're not even really in the, the first one you see. The rest of them after you get you know, more, then it gets a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. 
And, you know, so there was a point in where, you know, most of my beard was, was kind of just speckled here and there, and now I got a good patch of gray in the center, and not so much on the sides. Well, I'm guessing eventually, you know, I'm going to be like Regan. It's all going to be gray, and, and it's not going to be this subtle, you know, going on anymore. And that's what he's saying. Just as your strength is gone, your gray hairs are here and there on him, yet... It goes on to say he doesn't know it. He doesn't see the changing because it's so gradual. And that's what he's saying with their strength departing. You're not seeing the strength going because it's so gradual. And as we're seeing here the reality of what's happened, they are hot on one side, raw and cold on another. They're, They're getting further and further away from the Lord. Their strength is gone And then it says in verse 10, and the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. As as they're becoming more and more aware now because God is saying, look at how far you've gone. They're not turning back. And it's one of those things where sometimes you can say, well, I'm not that far. I'm not that far into it. I'm just kind of dabbling in it. But what happens is this. When you dabble in it, you can dabble just a little bit more. And if you can justify a little dabble, you can justify a little more dabble. You can justify a little more. And what happens is this. Spiritually, your beard is getting speckled. Spiritually, your hair is turning gray. Spiritually, you're going in increments and your strength is leaving you. And so we see here, he doesn't even know it. And yet the, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Look at where you're at. Look at, you guys have no spiritual strength. And yet, although they realize that, as God is speaking, they do not return to the Lord, nor do they seek him for all this. They don't want to turn. They don't want to repent. They're already saying, well, if I've already okayed a little bit, I can okay a lot. And so we see here this refusal of Israel to come back to God, even though he's trying to say, would you come back to me? In verse 11, he says, Ephraim is also like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air, and I will chastise them according to their congregation, to what the con- their congregation has heard. Now he says, these are like these doves that try to flee. They're always going somewhere else. They're always going somewhere else. Now keep in mind at the end of verse 10, they said this, they do not return to the Lord their God. But what they do in verse 11 is they call to Egypt, they go to Assyria, And he says, no matter where you go, I'm going to catch you. (laughs) You can try to run from me, but you know that old saying, you can run, but you can't hide. And God says, listen, I'm going to throw my net on you. If you go to Egypt, my net's going to reach there. If you go to Syria, my net's going to reach there. You cannot stop this. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to chastise you. And according to everything to what the congregation has heard, I'm telling you, I'm going to pursue you. Now, verse 13, woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, yet they have spoken lies against me. 
Now here's God saying, I'm going to, you know, you're like this dove that's constantly flying all these other places trying to avoid the followers, but you're going to get caught because you're not the brightest of doves. And so he says, when you do this, what's going to happen is this. You're going down to Egypt because you're fleeing my discipline. Now, remember what we talked about, that God wanted them to come back. And so he's, you know, turning up the heat, but he's so merciful. He's only doing as much as he needs to, to get them to turn. Well, the problem is, is what? He's doing a little heat, but they're not turning. He's doing a little bit more and they're not turning and they're becoming accustomed to it. And they're literally, you know, putting their face like flint. I'm not going to. And so they flee from God. Rather than coming back to him in repentance, they don't do that. They flee from God. So in verse 13, woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them. When you're leaving life, there's only death. And so he says, because they have transgressed against me, though I've redeemed them. It's absolutely incredible that he said, they have fled from me, though I have redeemed them. Look at the extent that God would go to allow them to come into a right relationship. He says, I've redeemed them. I've done everything I can to bless them. At the end of verse 13, it says this, yet they have spoken lies against me. I've done everything I can to bring them to a closer relationship to me. I've redeemed them, and all they do is they speak lies. A couple of things I want to share with you, just a few passages. The first is found in Isaiah chapter 49. I want to read two verses to you. I want to read verse 14 and 15. It declares this. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my God has forgotten me. And God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. But they said, the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forgotten us. And it's just absolutely not true. What Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 51 verse 5 is this. For Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah by his God, the Lord of hosts through their land was, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. And even though they did all this stuff wrong, here Jeremiah 51 verse 5 says, The Lord has not forsaken Judah, uh, or the, Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah, but, but by his God, the Lord of hosts, though the land was filled with sin against him. So he says, I haven't forsaken you. And yet that's what they would do. Remember when God redeemed the children of Israel from Egypt and they're in Exodus 16, what do they say? Oh, God's brought us out here to die. I didn't bring you out here to die. I brought you out here to worship me. I brought you here to get you out of the bondage that you were there in Egypt. But oh, if we could go back, remember we had the pots full of meat and all the bread and all the lentil. Oh, you really did, but you also had the taskmaster's whip. And so they're looking to say, God isn't doing this and God isn't doing this. He says, I've redeemed you. And all you're doing is spreading lies. You're making lies like I could actually forget you, like I would forsake you. Like a mother could never forget her nursing infant. But in verse 14, he said, they did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. So although they are going through this discipline, they're not turning back to me. They're going through the suffering, 
but now they're angry with me, and they're saying, God, this is your fault I'm having to go through this. God, it's not my fault. I'm trying to bring you back into a place of joy and peace with me, but you're pursuing everything else. And so they said, they wailed upon their beds, and they assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. Though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bull, and their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So as he talks about this, they're going through this suffering, now, they assemble together at the end of verse 14 for this new wine and for the grain and the new wine. Now, that term they assemble together has the meaning of they slashed themselves. It's that same thing that remember there in 1 Kings chapter 18 when, you know, you're, you're there around verse 28 where the, the um those prophets of Baal, they would cut themselves so that he would hear. And that's what they're doing. They're assembling themselves. Literally, the term says that they slash themselves for grain and new wine. And they rebel against him. They're going after the false gods, but they're not coming to God. They're trying to harm themselves so they can get from these false gods. When God says, listen, I'll provide, and you don't have to do that. And he says, though I disciplined and I strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. I'm trying to teach them what's right. They're now blaming me. And in verse 16, you see this incredible truth that God is saying. Now, I, before I read it, let's go back to chapter 6, verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. And in verse 16 here of chapter 7, it says, they return, but not to the Most High. They're like a treacherous bow. The princes shall fall by the sword. For the cursing of their tongue, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So they said they're, they're going to return, but they're not going to come to me. And, and so what they're saying is that they're like this treacherous bow. Now, I don't know if you understand what archery is, but a treacherous bow is when the string is not taken care of and the string breaks. Now, if you're familiar with what happens is you have one arm outstretched and now you're pulling the other one towards your face. Now, when the string breaks, it releases, what are you doing? You're just beating yourself up and you're smacking yourself. And, you're smacking, and that's what he says. You're, you're, you're not turning to me, but you're beating yourself up. You're smacking yourself in the face. The princes are going to fall by the sword. You cannot defend yourself with a bow that doesn't work. The princes are going to fall by the sword. And for the cursings of their tongue, this shall be the derision in their land of Egypt. So we see here in chapter 8, set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry, will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They will set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they make for themselves, they make idols for themselves that they might be cut off. So we see here, he says, put a trumpet to your mouth. Get ready. I want you to hear. Um, he shall come like the eagle against the house of the Lord. 
let him know that here I'm going to sound the trumpet because he's going to come like eagle against the house of the Lord. He says, listen, I, I, your land is mine and I'm now going to rule against you and against that land. I'm not going to protect you simply because you're in the land. You are defiling the land because, he says, they have transgressed my covenant. Don't think that because you're in the house of God that God can't touch you. And that's what Israel thought. It says, we have the temple. We're fine. God says, I'll get rid of this temple because you guys have no part of this temple. Your heart isn't in that temple. It's just a building to you. And it says, they rebelled against my law. They transgressed against my covenant. They rebelled against my law. Now Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. And I'll tell you what, they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know the God that he chose to reveal himself through his word. And I think, here's the problem. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. That There's a lot of people that the God that they think they know is not the God that the Bible declares him to be. When I was younger, before I came to know the Lord, true story, I thought me and God were like this, that we were buds. I thought he knows me. And he sort of justifies my sin in the same way I justify my sin. And, and God would realize, well, Lowell, the only reason why you were angry was because they did that. I understand that. And I had this God of my own making. I had this God of my own reasoning. And eventually I started reading the Bible and I realized I was only half right. That God did know me, but he wasn't happy with me. He didn't justify any of my sin. He says, no, no, your sin is all wrong. I have to die for that sin. That's what I have to do. I won't justify anything. And so we see here that they think, we know you, we know you. This is, Israel has rejected the good. What you may say we know isn't what you're doing. You're saying only with your mouth, but your life does not bear witness to this. And so the enemy will pursue them. They set up kings, but not by me. They're not choosing kings that are after me, after my own heart. They made princes. I didn't acknowledge them, God said. And from their silver and their gold, they made idols for themselves so they might be cut off. You're tempting me. You're coming in and saying, well, I'm going to serve this idol. He says, go ahead and serve that idol. In fact, I'll send you to Assyria. You don't want to be here by me? I'll, I'll send you off. Now in verse 5, he says, Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Now if you're familiar with the passage that he's talking about, in 1 Kings chapter 12, there's the man by the name of Jeroboam. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, just in his own arrogance, caused you know, 10 of the tribes to flee. Well, eventually, Jeroboam sets himself up as king of the northern tribes. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there to build and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom, these ten tribes that I'm in charge of, may return to the house of David. And if these people go up and they offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, 
Then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord. Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they'll kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold and said to the people, is it, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt and set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people who went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. So we see here that he sets up this calf. He sets up two of them, one in Bethel, the other up in Dan. And he says, you know what? You don't want to go down to Jerusalem. It's too far. You don't want to go down there. But he's afraid if they go down there, they're going to realize, here's God. I, so stay as far away from that as you can. And so this is what's been happening here within this area. And so we begin to look, and I, I just find it so intriguing here that as he, he comes through, he says, all right, this is it. They've gone through, and he says back in verse 5 of Hosea chapter 8, your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is re re aroused against them. For how long will they attain to innocence? And from here, Israel is even this. A workman made it. It is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Now he goes on in verse 7 and says, And they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. And of course, you've, you know that from Galatians. And so, you know, what you sow, you're going to reap. And so they're sowing the wind, they're reaping the whirlwind. And the, keep in mind that the wind has nothing to offer you. The wind has no substance. You can't eat it. You can't do anything. He says, you're sowing to this which has no substance, and you're reaping devastation, which is the whirlwind. So you're sowing to things that cannot profit. You're reaping devastation. The stock has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which there is no pleasure. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes." So he says, here you are. You're going to sow to the wind, reap the whirlwind. You're like this donkey that's all by itself, and you're pursuing all these other things. And he says, you're, you're, verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria like a donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. So they're pursuing here mates, and it's like, I want you to love me. I want you to love me. But they have to purchase them where God says, listen, I want to love you freely, but you're going out like Gomer, she would go out and she would pay for lovers. And so in verse 11, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, in other words, the northern tribes have made many places, they have come for, they have become for him altars for sinning. In verse 12, he says, I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. 
I want to pause here for just a second because in verse 12 he says, I have written for him great things of the law. I've given him my heart. I've given him reality. I've given him everything that he needs. But they were considered a strange thing. The word of God was considered a strange thing. It's absolutely amazing that here that they have all these works that they're doing, but there's really no direction to really understand God's heart because they're just doing everything again by rote. And he says, I've written, I've shown you all kinds of amazing things, but yet you would read my word and it's considered strange. And I find it intriguing that in our day and age, when you talk about the things of the Bible, that you're considered backwards. When you talk about purity, you're considered backwards and old-fashioned. When you talk about right and wrong, you're judgmental all of a sudden. And yet, they can judge you, they can do everything they want, and the Word of God is a strange thing, and it's becoming stranger and stranger to the more of the population of our nature, of our nation. And in verse 13, it says, For the sacrifices of my offering, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour him. So at this point in verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker. They have no idea who God is and they have built temples. You have these golden calves, but they don't come to Israel. They don't come down to Judah to the temple of God. Now Judah on the other hand, has these fortified cities and has multiplied fortified cities. They're saying these cities are going to protect us. These cities are going to protect us. God says, cities aren't going to protect you. I will protect you. So if you're trying to build all these fortifications around your life, know this, that none of them will be effective. You're trying to build these fortifications. If I, if I keep in this area, I'll have joy or peace or, or financial security. God says, listen, you can't get any of that in anything but what? In me. Once you have me and me alone, all these things go. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So in chapter 9, he says, do not rejoice, O Israel, with the joy like other people's. For you played the harlot against your God. Don't, don't come rejoicing like you're okay with me. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. Now, at this point, what he's saying is this. Now, on the threshing floor is the place where they would be receiving all the grain. It would be where their prosperity is. And he says, you're now, you make love for hire on every threshing floor. You're thinking because you have some prosperity that you're doing good. And you're thinking because, you know, you have all this prosperity and then you're giving yourself over to idols that it's an okay thing. He said, it's not. The threshing floor, verse 2, and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. So God's going to simply move them out of the land. So in verse 3, it says, They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and say, and shall eat unclean things in Assyria, and they shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. So he says, I'm going to remove you, 
and any sacrifices you make, you're going to realize it's not pleasing me. He says then in verse 4, it shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. You won't be able to offer God anything because you're going to have next to nothing. You won't sacrifice anything to God. Verse 5, he says, What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them, which is a city in Egypt. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. In other words, the curse is going to come upon you. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. And the spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. But the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of his God. He says, I'm here and I'm trying to minister, but the enemy's coming and he's captured your minds. He's captured your hearts. Verse 9, they are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Now in verse 10, he makes a statement. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. When I saw them, they were refreshing. They were like these grapes in the wilderness. It's like, oh, what an unexpected pleasure. You're in the wilderness. You're hungry. You're not expecting anything. You come upon these grapes, and you're thinking, this is amazing. The first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, just sweet and plump. So although initially I found Israel, and Israel was an unexpected blessing, then at the middle of verse 10, but... Do you see how everything was going good? But they went to Baal Peor, and I separated, and they separated themselves to that shame, and they became an abomination to the thing that they loved. So at this point, they gave themselves over to sin, and so they became an abomination. Now, verse 11, as for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. So within the northern tribes, no glory, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. You're not going to have children. Though they bring up their children, I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre, and I planted in a pleasant place, Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. So he says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge your children and then he says in verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give? He said, what are you going to give to them? What are you going to do? And so realize that what he's going to do, he's going to give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. In other words, there will be no fruit of children. Verse 15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. And I will drive them from my house and I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. It's, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, they, where they bear children, 
I would kill the darlings of their womb. So God says, I am not going to allow you to prosper because you have truly forsaken me. In verse 17, my God will cast them away because they did not obey them and because they shall be wanderers among the nation. Now remember, when we were there in chapter 6, verse 1, the first thing we saw is what? Come, let us return to the Lord. But they're finding all these reasons they can't, all these reasons they shouldn't. So in chapter 10, Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars, according to the bounty of his land, they have embellished its sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. And so what happens is this. They're, they're doing some things for God out of rote. They're worshiping idols as well. Their heart is truly divided. Now they are held guilty. God says, you can't have be faithful to me and the idols. You are committing adultery. So because their heart is divided, verse 2, now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? So they have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant Thus, judgment springs up like a hemlock in the furrows of the field. So in verse 3, they're saying, listen, we have no king because we didn't fear the Lord and ask for this king. What would he do for us? We don't have government keeping us in check. And the problem is you don't need a government to keep you in check. Why? Because the problem is your heart. The government can keep an outsting person in check. It can't keep the heart in check. And so you're saying we have no king and that's your problem. The problem isn't the king. The problem is your heart. So in verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria fear because the calf of Beth-Avon for its people mourn for it and its priests shriek for it because its glory has departed from it. The idols shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of its own counsel. Now, I want to speak in just a second here on verse 5, because what happens is this. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. Now, as we were reading that passage there in 1 Kings 12, remember, it was in Bethel. Bethel is called, Beth is the house. El is of God, like Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethel is the house of God. So when they put this calf, they called it Bethel, the house of God. But yet Hosea calls it Beth-Avon. That means the house of iniquity. So he says this, this calf is not in the house of God. This calf is the house of iniquity. But everyone's going to shriek and mourn because what's going to happen is this. Verse 6, that idol, that calf, shall be carried into Assyria. They're going to break it up. They're going to take it away. As a present for King Jerob, Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Now, as for Samaria, her king is cut off. Like a twig on the water, also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. The same thing we read about in Revelation. 
the judgment of God comes and there's no escape. So they're saying we'd rather die than go through this judgment. And God says, no, I'm going to bring you through this judgment so you can return to me. In verse 9, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity. Do not overtake them. When it is my desire, I'll chasten them. God says, you can't stop me. I'm going to deal with my children. People shall be gathered against them when I bid, when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Judah shall break its clods. So he's calling them now a type of cow. Now what he says in verse 11 is Ephraim is a trained heifer and loves to thresh grain. Now if you're familiar with what a trained heifer does, it's there hooked onto a little um, grinding wheel. It just walks around and around and around. And it just simply just plods along, just walking. Very little pressure, very little pull. And whenever it's hungry, it can just simply just eat the grain. It can do that. You don't tread the, you don't, you know, not feed the ox while it treads up the grain. So it's a trained heifer. It was a very easy round around thing. But he says, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to harness her neck and I will make Ephraim pull a plow. You're not going to be in this nice little cool building walking around all gradual. I'm going to take you outside in the hot sun. You're going to be breaking hard dirt. This is hard, hard labor. So he says, you thought all your food was easy not a problem. I'm going to make it very difficult for you. I'm sending you outside. You're going to be pulling a plow. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break its clods. So with the harnessing of the oxen, the beast, the bird, he says, your your labor is going to increase. And now verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Again, he's saying, just come back to me. Verse 13, he says, you plowed in wickedness. You've reaped iniquity. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. Then notice he says, at dawn. At dawn, the king is going to be cut off utterly. Remember what the scripture says, and joy shall come in the morning? Not coming here. At dawn, there is just destruction. There is no joy that comes in the morning. And so we see here that what God is trying to do is this. He told them initially, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. There in chapter 6, come and let us return to the Lord. Yeah, he disciplined you, but he's going to bind you up. He's going to heal you. He's here to draw you back to him. But if you reject, know this, he's going to put obstacle, obstacle, obstacle in your way. And he's going to literally cause you so much pain, you'll have no choice but to come back. And, and any time that, that you're you know, suffering as you're walking away from the Lord, you can't blame God. 
God says, I've told you to come back. I've told you to come back. And everything that I'm doing is to get you back to me so that I can do what? So we can reason together. So that you and I could have that relationship that we were always meant to be. He wants to be like Hosea going and purchasing Gomer from the slave block. says, now you can be my wife again. You're not going to be unfaithful. Just be mine. I'm going to be a husband to you. I want to love you the way that I desire to love you, but I can't when you're in this place. So we see this beautiful thing of just this disciplining that God does to an unfaithful nation. But yet his whole heart was what? Return to me. With everything that you are, just return to me. And, and I know you've been disciplined, but I'm here to heal. I'm here to bind up. I'm here to, again, raise you up. What a glorious thing. This is. I'm here to give you eternity with me, but come back to me. Receive my gift. And may that be our hearts. Amen. Well, Father, we do thank you for just this passage. And so much of it is just devastation. Just devastation. And it's all because they played righteousness. It was all outside. And you wanted them to have true righteousness on the inside, that you could have a relationship. Father, forgive us um, and, and forgive this land and forgive the churches of this land that we practice things and we come into your house and we pretend everything's okay that we pretend you don't see anything and that, that nothing is really happening and our lives are perfect. But yet, Father, you want to deal with us, and so we give you the freedom. You come and be God. Let your spirit deal with the things you have to deal with so that we don't simply come and give sacrifices, just donate some of our time to sit in your house, go through the motions. But, Father, do the work within us. We want to come back to you. We want to be raised up with your son and experience you and all your glory and eternity. So do that work within our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.